Hear the word of the Lord from the Song of Solomon. And let me give you just a quick context before we read where we're at in this love song. The Song of Solomon is passionate poetry of love between a man and a woman. And now we are celebrating their married love because the wedding was last week in chapter 3. And we've understood the Song of Solomon is not necessarily literally about King Solomon, but it uses the king of Israel as a reference point to describe how amazing real love looks between a man and woman that type of love that even a king couldn't command or purchase with all of his wealth or glory. It's an imaginative description, like an opera, you could say, between these two ordinary people who share an extraordinary love. And so the love is ideal in the text, but it's also real. And that's what we're picking up right now in chapter 5, is real love that still has to deal with sin and pride and the pain of a relationship. And so the woman who is married now had a dream in chapter 3, a dream of fear of being abandoned by her fiancé at that time, now they're married, she has another dream in chapter 5, and that's what this is, the word of the Lord from Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. Let's read together now. The woman says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, for my locks with the drops of the night. And then she says, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. And then her friends say, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful of women? What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you thus adjure us? Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord, our God, stands firm forever. Amen? Amen. So here we have the woman having another dream, the wife now saying, I slept, but my heart was awake. So it's a restless sleep. It's a sleep with an anxious heart. I've had a couple nights of sleep like that this week. Maybe you have too. And during her sleep, maybe she's still in that middle stage of sleepfulness and wakefulness, or maybe this is awakening her now, but she hears a knocking on the door the door of her bedroom. And she hears a voice. Oh, sweet cakes, why have you locked me out of my own house, our own bedroom? And the husband gives this fourfold compliment. My sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. I mean, wouldn't that work, right? My perfect one? You're not buying it, I know. She didn't either. So, Fourfold request, and each one is met with this kind of annoying, irritated response. Honey, you should have called if you're going to come home late from the office, or, you know, literally out in the fields because the man's a shepherd. Honey, you're late again. I'm in my nightgown. I've got my hair in curlers. I've bathed. Do you think I'm really going to roll out from under this warm blanket when you've treated me like this? Dinner was cold. I gave it to the dog already, you know. He's in the doghouse, but the dog says, you're not sleeping here with me. 
I've already eaten your dinner. There's a do not disturb sign on the bedroom door. Mama is not happy. She's giving him the silent treatment. She thinks, if I lay here really still and quiet, maybe he'll think I'm asleep. It's almost as if like she's doing the mannequin challenge in her bed, like taking a selfie of herself, posting it, maybe he'll see that and go away. It's, it's really, I guess it boils down to laziness. That's not just physical laziness here, of course, but like emotional laziness, spiritual laziness. I really don't need this again. I, I'm not going to do this again. We're not going there again. You've done it again, and I'm not going to forgive you, and I'm not going to let you in. You need to learn your lesson. Don't we all have a tendency to be lazy in our relationships where after a couple times that someone has offended us or done what we didn't want them to do, even if they don't know and can't read our mind, we just say, not this time. I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to respond. Laziness is that unwillingness to humble yourself and make the first move or even the second move if necessary, the third. But let me encourage you as you think about what's going on with this conflict between this couple who are definitely not on the honeymoon anymore. Honeymoon's over. The chemistry has kind of simmered down and now the conflict has started. And she's just tired. She's had a long day. She's tired. She's being spiritually lazy, you could say, emotionally unavailable and physically unavailable, by the way. Wouldn't it really spice up relationships, whether it's friendships or whether it's a relationship with your parents or whether it's a dating relationship or a marriage? Wouldn't it spice up those relationships if we were more quick to repent? You know, repentance and humility is pretty attractive in a relationship. If you want to like, get in the mood, try being humble and generous and quick to love and slow to speak and slow to become angry and those things. That would really be kind of exotic in a relationship. Repentance. Try it. It shouldn't be exotic. It should be common among us. Saying I'm sorry is very attractive. So finally she says, I'm sorry. She pulls herself out of bed. She shuffles over and opens the door. And she says, babe, honey, where are you? And it's just quiet. Cold wind blowing outside. I guess two can play at that game, we could say. She said, I, I heard my beloved extending his hand through the opening and the latch of the door, and my heart was thrilled within me. Now, the door doesn't just symbolize in the Song of Solomon the physical door in the bedroom, but she's talking about her availability, too. In chapter 8, the door means, am I available to a man? And she says, no, I'm not here at your beck and call. Go away. Some commentators tell us that the, the, the liquid myrrh that's dripping on the handle as she goes to open the door, that it's some sort of calling card, like a perfume, like sealing the envelope with a kiss. The husband had said, well, you know, at least you'll know that I was here because I left your favorite perfume on the handle. That's one interpretation. There are other ways that, I, that we could interpret this, but I'll just leave it at this very simple summary since we have kids in the room. He's done something very kind to her, and she has realized her mistake. But too late. You know, she regrets that she was in this bad mood. She finally gets up, but it's too late. He's already gone in verse 6. And when she sees that he's not there, her soul fails her. She seeks him, but finds him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. He's really gone. He's not answering his texts. I would have imagined it's time to make an appointment with the marriage counselor at this point. Time to go visit the therapist. Because here's what happens once again, is this woman begins to become afraid. 
of abandonment. She's possibly still dreaming, possibly she's awake, we're not quite sure, but either way, her husband really has gone, and she's sorry that she's the one that turned him away, and now she's afraid, will he come back? Will I see him? Will something bad happen out there on those streets? Will he be driving the car too fast around the corner because he's angry and maybe go off the road into the ditch? Before she didn't want to be bothered by him, now she can't imagine being without him, and she's afraid. And I think we can all identify with this type of um, pattern in our relationships, a selfishness, an unwillingness to repent or to be humble and, and take a step of reconciliation when there's conflict. And our hearts seem like often they're set with a timer to the setting of selfishness. Like, it's just going to happen. It's just a matter of time. When are you going to be selfish next? In what relationship will you exhibit selfishness and pride? That's the question. Trying to prove ourselves or protect our reputation or promote our agenda over someone else's. Our relationships often look like the opposite of what is called the love chapter in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know that chapter, right? Love is patient, love is kind, and so on. Our version seems like someone with dyslexia reading it, or maybe reading it upside down or backwards, when we could say, we are impatient, we are unkind, we envy, we boast, we are arrogant, we are rude, we insist on our own way, we are irritable and keep a record of wrong, we rejoice in others' pain, we rejoice in using the truth like a baseball bat, we do not bear even the smallest insults. We don't believe people. It's just an excuse. We lose hope. We don't endure repeated offenses. Often, we fail. We need to look at the love chapter and put that in our hearts, but this is our condition. Selfish, irritable, impatient. Once, the founder of the United States Red Cross, Clara Barton, was asked about an injury someone had done to her, an insult, an offense. And they said, what did you do about that? That was terrible. You must feel really angry at that person. And she said, I distinctly remember forgetting that. I pray that God would give us a spirit of forgetfulness, holy amnesia, you could say, to those that have done us wrong and lead us to think, I can't forgive that. I will not forgive that. I will not make the first move. May the Spirit of God give us the power to walk in humility, in holiness, to have holy amnesia even, because selfishness has a way of forgetting its own problems. I mean, have you forgotten that you've contributed to most conflict in the relationships you're in? Selfishness has a way of being blind to our own faults. But it seems like we were born with this 2020 vision, like x-ray vision almost. We can see exactly what people are thinking, right? We can see right into their hearts. We know their motives, right? It's amazing those, those abilities we have to see so clearly someone else's sin or flaw but to be so blind or own. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 to 4? We see that tiny little speck of dust in our, our brother's eye, and we want to point that out. Look at you. How could you? And then we fail to see that there's a big log in our own eye, a massive problem that we're refusing to see. We're ignoring it. So we have this microscopic power to magnify even the small flaws in our friends or our family or our lovers. We, we pick out one little thing they said or did, and we magnify it. Pretty, pretty amazing powers that we have. We take these tiny things and we make them into like poster-sized problems. We want everybody to know about it, too. We won't be happy until everybody knows our pain 
or our burden that we're bearing. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, the, the human heart is deceptive above all things, and it's desperately sick. The heart is broken. It's sick. It has a problem. We, we need to be fixed. And then the, the prophet goes on to tell us, who can understand the heart? I, I'm just going to say, that's a hypothetical question, but the answer is no one. You can't understand your own heart, how deep the sickness is, and you can't understand someone else's heart, so stop trying to be their um, therapist and you know, read their mind. The prophet says, crying out to Yahweh, actually it's Yahweh speaking, the Lord says, I search the heart and test the mind. I search the heart and test the mind. So stop trying to ignore your own sins. Let God search you and show you where you need to change. Let God search the other person's heart and you stop doing that. The woman says, as if she's put on the word of God now like a pair of prescription glasses, now she's starting to speak clearly. Oh, I've made a mistake here. My husband is being kind of sweet. He left perfume on the door or whatnot and so now she's feeling really bad. My heart is failing within me, she says in verse 5. I'm feeling lovesick, she says in verse 8. She's broken hearted. And so what she do? She puts on her veil, which is maybe covering her head or maybe even her face, and she goes out into the night and she goes on the street calling for her husband, but she doesn't find him, but someone finds her. Who is it? The watchman. The watchman of the walls. Now, these are the men that are meant to protect the street life and the, the night uh, life in this city where they were. But what do they do? They grab her, they rip the veil off of her head, exposing her, and then she says, and we're not quite sure if this is a dream still or if this is really happening, but she's afraid of something that really does happen. She says, they beat me. They bruised me. She's being abused, whether in her fearful imagination of the dream or in real life. Remember we've said before, this woman doesn't seem to have a father in the story of the Song of Solomon. In the songs that they sing, there's only mention of the mother and the brothers. And she mentions them a lot, but no father. She might be feeling this sense of abandonment now by the one who she's married, the one who she loved, he's gone. And these men just come and take advantage of that. They expose her, they exploit her, they humiliate her. I've talked with women in this church who've told me that the police have abused them physically and sexually in ways that... It just makes me cringe, makes me sick to my stomach. The ones that are called to serve and protect now become predators. Even these watchmen need accountability. Even these watchmen need protection from themselves, and we need to be protected from, from them sometimes. And she says, after they beat me and bruised me, I'm asking you, my friend, please, I'm not going to keep looking I've got to go take care of myself now, but would you let me know if you see my beloved, my husband out there on these mean city streets? And at this point, the friends say, well, what is your beloved more than another beloved in verse 9? What makes your man so special? Well, let me just remind you, as I mentioned last week, if this was really about the, uh, the King Solomon literally marrying a woman, I guarantee people wouldn't talk to the queen like that. They wouldn't be saying, what's the big deal about your husband? But this is a shepherd man, a common man. And so they say, why should we care about your love? And she says, well, I'll tell you why. And then she begins to list all the reasons, now that she's feeling over her 
pride, all the reasons she does love him and wants him to come back. And this is where we pick up in verses 10 and following. Well, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. He's big and strong and healthy. He's distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold, so he's like fine in every way. His locks are wavy, black as ravens, so he's got like a thick, wavy hair. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk. I didn't know that doves bathed in milk, but I guess... You know, it works for her. And they're sitting beside a, a full pool. So what, what she's saying is his eyes are like deep pools of water and gentle doves. He has gentleness in his eyes, not unforgiveness or, or spite or malice towards me. And then she goes on to say, his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. Why would his cheek look like spices? Well, he probably has a beard. And, you know, he's probably put some pretty good aftershave on or whatever he uses to, you know, freshen up. And she says, I, I just miss the way his face smells. And then, oh, his lips. They're like lilies. Say what? Like lilies. Yeah, they're gentle. They taste good when they kiss. And they're dripping with liquid myrrh. Is he drooling? What's going on here? No, just passionate, loving, sweet kisses and she misses this. And his arms are rods of gold, strong, fine, once again, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory. I mean, he's got a six-pack. And he probably waxes his chest, apparently, polished ivory. I don't know what's going on here, but he looks good. She, he's strong. His legs are like pillars set on bases of gold. He's stable. He's firm. He is a strong, beautiful man. She loves him. She says he's like Lebanon in verse 15, the choicest of cedars. Rugged, natural, you know, but beautiful and handsome. That's her man. She misses him. She says, if you see him, let him know that I'm sick with love for him. I want him back. And so then, at the end, in chapter 6, verse 1, where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful of women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Okay, we understand. He is your husband. He's the only one for you. He's not Solomon who had like a thousand wives he could go call on. This is your one and only man. Okay, we will help you find him. We understand how much you love this man. And so she calls him in chapter 5 or 16, my beloved and my friend. She says, that's who he is to me. He's not just some good-looking guy. He's my husband. He's my friend. There's this reconciliation happening in her heart. There was the conflict, but now there's resolution in her own heart and an attempt to be reconciled and reunited to her husband. I think the lesson for us obviously, is that when someone comes to be reconciled to us, we should be willing and eager to respond. That we should be the one taking the first step if necessary, but if we're the one in the wrong, certainly go and say, I'm sorry, if someone comes to you, be reconciled, the Bible says, to God and to each other. It's a command. And here she's showing us by example that even... The criticism or the shame or the slight that she felt from him, like not coming home on time or whatever the problem was in our story here, she's getting over it. She's getting over the bitterness. She's even using the criticism, maybe. The implicit criticism. Maybe he didn't insult her, but she felt insulted. Well, I cooked dinner for you. I was all ready for you. I, I got it showered up and cleaned up for you, but you never came, so forget you. Now she's feeling repentant. Humility, once again. Let me just encourage you that you can use criticism in, in conflict in relationships as an open door of opportunity for change. When conflict happens, this isn't the opportunity for you to now shame the other person and point out all their flaws. 
Oh, you're going to come at me like that? Well, I'll tell you what I think of you. Conflict and challenge in your relationships is not the opportunity for you to put down the other person, but to examine yourself. This is the perfect opportunity for you to ask, is this true what they're saying about me? Ask another friend who's actually on your good side that day, or someone that you love, so-and-so said this, is this true? Help me examine my heart and ask the hard questions. When conflict confronts us, it's confronting us with our own sin, not simply an opportunity to confront someone else in their sin. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 8 and 9 says, that if you correct or rebuke a wise person, he or she will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, a wise woman, and he or she will be wiser still. Is that how you respond to correction, guys? Is that how you respond when someone says something that you don't like? Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but do you actually take the time to reflect as a wise person, can I learn something from this? You don't have to always own it. Maybe it's not true. I'm just saying, are you humble enough to at least reflect and ask the questions and go to God in prayer and go to your friends and say, what do you think? Be honest with me. What am I like? Let the argument be like a mirror to your own sin. Learn to repent. Learn to be the first to say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I think I do need to change. One of my friends asked me before we got married uh, 17 years ago, one of my friends in seminary said, have you had a good, really good, intense argument with Shannon yet? I said, no, we haven't really had like a knockdown drag out or anything. We just, you know, maybe we disagreed over something, but we haven't really argued. It's just we love each other so much and we're so compatible, I guess, you know. She's rolling her eyes, just if you didn't see that. But he said, well, you really need to. And I was like, why do we need to have a really good argument before we get married? Because he says, you're going to have them eventually. And you need to see if you can actually work through those things humbly and with repentance and forgive each other, or if you're just going to get stuck. And it's just going to send you down to a deep, dark hole. Well, we've had some good conflicts now, and we've made it through. Happy to say over and over, we've recovered, we've reconciled, we've been reunited in our love. And soon in this marriage of ours, we started taking this guy's advice and having more and more conflicts, like right away. Like as soon as the honeymoon's over, kind of like this love song, the problems began. And often they were rooted in fear. Fear of losing control or fear of being exposed. And we had to really learn to trust each other and be vulnerable. I guess I'm a hard guy to trust. And she saw signs that she didn't think she could relax and be herself around me and tell me the whole truth. And it really took years before we really began sharing some of the deepest pain that we had in our hearts. We didn't really drive each other crazy, I would say, in these arguments, but I would say we already brought enough craziness into the arguments. We already brought enough pride and selfishness in because... It's true that marriage doesn't create the weaknesses in you. Marriage doesn't create sin in you. It simply reveals the sin, exposes the sin. Okay? When you have conflict with your friends or with your husband or wife or your parents or anybody, they are not responsible for your weakness and your sin. They're simply revealing it, which, of course, you're trying to hide that and you don't want them to talk about it. But let that conflict be an opportunity to deal with your sin and your weakness. When I was young, and even up into high school and college, people used to ask me on a regular basis, like, you seem like such a nice guy, you don't seem like you ever get angry. Do you ever get angry? And I'd say, well, of course I do. And I'd think, like, well, I do it kind of privately or, like, in my heart, but I don't really, like, lash out at people. And then I got married. And here it was being exposed and brought out of me. 
And I tried really hard for the first few months not to get angry. And she would often try to get me to admit, you're angry, right? No, I'm not angry. I'm just upset. You know, that's like a classic thing that people in denial say. Diplomats like me, I'm not angry. I'm calm, I'm cool, I'm collected, I'm a good husband, I'm a Christ-like man, I'm, I'm going to be a pastor one day, I am not angry. And then one day, I literally ran across the room in the kitchen and jumped and threw myself into the steel door, like that, and just kind of like slid down. I was so angry. I said, I don't want to hurt you, but I'm so angry and so hurt that I'm crying out for help. And I'm crying out, would you please listen to me? Thankfully, I didn't injure myself, you know. I didn't go like head first, I was kind of like whole body. But that was a wake-up call, like, wow, I really am dealing with some anger here. And this was the perfect opportunity to be exposed and to begin working on that. Marriage creates these opportunities for real change. And so do real friendships, people that really care about you, the church. These are contexts where you have people you can trust. They're not here to hurt you. They love you. That's why they are your friend. That's why they married you. That's why they keep coming and taking vows before the church like we're going to do next week when we have people join and say, you can talk to me about my sin. Do it gently, please. Do it lovingly. But we can talk about these things so that we can change together and grow in grace. Ephesians 5, verse 26, the verse we read last week, reminds husbands, and I think it applies to wives too, that we should wash each other with the word of God. We come kind of dirty, kind of messed up, and we need to help cleanse each other. Not with our own agenda, but with the Word of God. Gently, carefully, like you would bathe a child or someone who's sick. You know, help them to grow. And let them help you the same way. Conflict is worth entering because change is worth experiencing. If nobody ever rattles you up or upsets your you know, your agenda or ruffles your feathers, you're not going to really grow that much. You just live in your own little insulated idea that everything's fine and you're a great person. I always like to tell people if they think that they don't have much sin in their heart, just get married. Or like, stick around with the same roommate for like all four years of college or something like that. Like, just lock yourself into a a commitment that you can't escape and you'll begin to see the sin coming out of your heart and often out of your mouth. We need to do like C.S. Lewis said in one of his stories. I don't know if you remember the story where the, the person is covered in scales. He's become a dragon. And he takes his claw and begins peeling and ripping the skin off of himself. Because it's just layers and layers of calloused, old scales. And he begins peeling it off like an onion, getting down to the true him, the true person. Beyond all the hardness that he's put up. Because all the things people have said to him, the insults, the abuse that he's taken, he's built up these walls, but he just peels it off. And it's painful, it hurts, but he gets down to the real, tender, true, God-honoring, made in the image of God, Christ-following self that's under there. That's what we have to do. We have to take off the old, nasty stuff. The Bible tells us take off the old clothes that we wear and put on something new. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told to put off things like falsehood and and stealing and and being angered each other uh, in an ungodly anger and to put on love and tenderness and humility and forgiveness. You could summarize it by saying Ephesians chapter 4 says that we should be speaking the truth in love or literally the Greek just says truthing in love. Not just about speaking, it's like letting your whole life be a life of truth. Truthing in love is what it literally says. Put that on. 
like Christ did. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, what did Christ do? Well, we're told that this is our model. Have the same mind as that which was in Christ, that who was in the very nature of God did not consider that equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself or made himself nothing. The Greek word there is kenosis. It sounds a lot like another Greek word, gnosis, which is with a G-N, like gnocchi, you know, that Italian little yummy thing you can eat. Gnosis means a superior knowledge, like I'm a, an insider, and I have secret knowledge that no one else knows about. Kenosis is the opposite of gnosis. Gnosis, you think, I'm right, I know everything, and you don't. Kenosis says, I'm going to serve you. I might be right. I mean, Christ was always right. He's the perfect man. But what did he do? He poured himself out. He poured out the pride. He poured out the agenda and the assertiveness and always having to say he was right and prove his point. He didn't do that. God himself became a man, became a servant, and died a death on a cross to show us the way to salvation and also show us the way to live a godly life. And so he's saying, pour yourself out that pride. Put it off. Just dump it out. Live a life of kenosis and put on the things of God in Christ. Gentleness, love, humility, saying, I'm sorry. Speaking the truth in love. One of my kids, I won't mention any names here because you know, they're all sitting here, but one of my kids last week, or a couple weeks ago, took an eraser and like, rubbed off some skin on the hand right here in two spots. And I said, why would you do that? Well, other people were doing it. I just thought, I'll see like, what happened. Not a good idea. I won't be doing that again because it hurt pretty badly. Like, rub the skin right off. Erasers are meant to rub off you know, mistakes on paper, not skin. Right? Sometimes when I do work with my hands, like construction work, I'll use some super glue or construction adhesive or this expanding foam that's like extremely sticky. And a lot of times I don't wear gloves and I get this sticky stuff in my hands and I keep working and I pick up all the dirt in the room. It's like an amazing way to clean the room. All the dirt sticks to my hands. My hands just turn completely nasty. And my kids love to take that at night and as we're reading the Bible or reading a story, they just like begin picking off all the little hard pieces of glue and the dirt that's stuck to it and they just rip it off. Now sometimes they go a little too deep and they start ripping, you know, the wrong spot. Sometimes I'll even take sandpaper and like rub that little spot right there until it's gone. But trust me, you don't want to like just generally rub the whole hand, right? You want to focus, pinpoint on the spot. Kind of like when there's a cancer in the body, you want like a laser beam to focus with the radiation on that spot. And that's how our, our repentance, our humility, and our conflict resolution should be. When someone comes to us and says, you have a problem, there's two ways to look at it. First, you shouldn't just say, oh, I'm a terrible person. Okay, everything's terrible. You hate me. I knew I was a bad person. Now I'm just going to go off and salt. No, no. Let them deal with that one issue. Think about that one little spot and let the sandpaper hit it. Take that eraser and rub that one mistake. Don't go all over the place with it. And if you're giving advice to someone or giving some you know, encouraging, constructive criticism or speaking the truth in love, and you say, hey, there's something we need to talk about. Just focus on that one thing. Please don't bring up all the other stuff they do. Don't talk about their mom and how they act like their mom. And you know, you're you're always acting like the people that I don't like. You always do this. You never just stop saying all this this language that expands the problem, and focus in on the issue at hand. Pinpoint it, rub on it a little bit, scrape it away, but be careful not to do collateral damage in this person's life. Be careful to just deal with the sin 
Not the skin all over, not the person and who they are and everything else that makes them who they are. Does that make sense? One of my seminary professors would say it like this, be as firm as necessary, but as gentle as possible. He would always pray for us like that. God, help this person with their problem or sin. Be as firm as necessary, as gentle as possible. And so when someone insults you, don't just reflexively insult them right back. Don't run away from the problem and say, oh, you just think I'm terrible. Deal with it. Don't go hide under the bed. Don't ignore them. Don't pout. Don't stop talking to them and say, well, I'm just going to call a truce or a ceasefire. You know, a ceasefire, when you stop talking to someone and give them the silent treatment, a lot of times you're just using the excuse of having a ceasefire as a chance to reload your ammunition so you can come back with more against them. Nothing really good or godly about a ceasefire unless you're using that time to pray and reflect and repent and gather your thoughts so you can go and be restored. When I get offended, it's my responsibility to examine my heart, to repent. I'm not saying I do this well or it comes easily, but that's my responsibility. Not to run away, not to ignore the problems, not to make excuses, but to deal with them. Let me just ask you as we close here, to remember what Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Whoever rules his spirit is better than he who takes the city. What it's saying is, you want to be tough, you want to be strong, you want to be this big bad person who's always right? Well, here's how you show how strong you really are. Control your anger. Control your tongue. Start to understand your heart and have some self-control because if you control your spirit, you're mightier than a warrior who takes a city in battle. Think about Jesus again. He served us like this. The mightiest, the strongest, came the lowest, the humblest. He controlled himself for our sake. He gave himself. He poured himself out. Kenosis for our sake. He saw our sins. He saw our mistakes. But he didn't run away from us. He loved us to the end. And he keeps loving us today. Don't mistake God's kindness for weakness. Don't think, oh, I'm so glad Jesus died for my sins. Now I can just live however I want. No. He says, have the same mind as Christ in your relationship. If there's a problem today, show your true strength by humbling yourself and asking for the Lord's help and giving up your pride, giving up your agenda. Be reconciled as Christ has forgiven us so you should forgive one another. If Jesus could love me in my marriage like this, I mean, truly the honeymoon is over, the fairy tale is over, we've had conflicts, we know that it's not always going to be perfect, but if Jesus could love me and change a man like me, and after 17 years she's still married to me, and some of you keep, just keep coming to our church after all these years, that humbles me, it gives me hope. If God could change me, He could change any of us. So let's go on continuing to love each other in our marriages, in our families, with your parents, with your children, with your siblings, with your friends and co-workers, neighbors. Let's love each other in the church no matter how hard it gets. The honeymoon is over. I mean, in, in America, the honeymoon's over, right? The election has happened. We have a lot of work to do. Let's humble ourselves. Not hide, not run away, but let's deal with the problems in a godly, Christ-like way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. Thank you that through this story of a marriage, a real marriage, it had real problems, and through our own reminders of what we've contributed to conflict, you've shown us that there is hope, there is help, and there is the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who was God and 
emptied himself by taking on something, taking on human flesh, taking on humility in the role of a servant. He's poured himself out completely for us. Pour out power from on high, we ask, Holy Spirit, so that we might forgive one another, even as you've forgiven us. Help us to love each other, even as you've loved us. This is the greatest command. It's the hardest command, we admit. But the greatest command, help us to love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.